Dear listeners, here is the first homily of the blessed elder Athanasius Midellinaeus on the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ shown to the holy apostle and evangelist John, and is the last book in the canon of holy scripture found in the Bible. To hear other homilies and receive the weekly update, please search Athanasius Midellinaeus in your podcast app or use the links in the program notes below. With the grace of our Holy Triune God, we have made it once again to the month of October, the month where most of us get busy. We prepare for winter, and our farmers prepare the fields to plant. As our farmers come out to their fields to plant the wheat, in the same manner the Word of God needs to go out and be planted. A sower went out to sow his seed. Exilthenospiron to spiritonsporon abdu. We read this insane look, and the Word of God comes out not to till or cultivate, but only to sow. The preparation of the field is the responsibility of men. Now, if we come to hear the Word of God, how we hear it and perceive it, and how it affects our personal life, this is something totally dependent on us. However, the sower comes and sows constantly. It is the exodus of God, which is an exodus of God's love towards his creation. God wanted to walk with his people. He did so with his incarnation, and he comes to sow the word of his divine truth. But as I told you, it depends on us how we hear the word of God. We have an entire year in front of us, and we will come to hear the word of God. Now, the Word of God, at times, it falls on trampled and hard ground, unbroken, not, not tilled, and it leaves the ground of this heart indifferent. Someone comes in and hears, but he's not moved at all. The Word of God also falls on fickle hearts, those that become easily enthused, they feel inner joy for the Word of God, but when they step out the door, they forget everything. Other seed falls on hearts that promise a lot. They map out a beautiful spiritual life, but 1,001 concerns of this life come and choke the seedlings of God, and in the end, these hearts remain fruitless. We pray that none of us here belong to the above categories. Not my beloved, the word of God must fall on good and fertile soil so the word of God can bear fruit, the fruit of holiness. However, these hearts must accept the word of God with fear and humility, and in doing so they will produce 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. I hope and pray once again that we do not have a single heart from the first three fruitless categories, but we need to have all the hearts present here to prove to be of good earth. And my prayer is that the word of God that falls on our hearts produces great fruit. This year, the grace of God offers us the great opportunity to sow his word from the book of the Revelation. 
It is the last book of the New Testament and the entire Holy Scripture. This book forms the conclusion of the Holy Scripture, and it corresponds considerably with the first book, the book of Genesis, with which the book of the Revelation forms the axis for salvation. Now, if the book of Genesis refers to the history of man's fall, the book of the Revelation refers to the history of man's restoration and salvation. In the book of Genesis, we have the description of the creation of the world and men. It is the beautiful twilight of the visible created world. But the people fell to sin from the instigation of the devil, and since then, we brought in, along with sin, death and corruption. Everything gave the appearance that God's beautiful plan was negated, and God's plan was to have nature draw near to God, to unite with Him and be deified and sanctified. But whatever God creates cannot be nullified or negated. And in order to renew the visible created world, God's economy brought forth the incarnation of the second person of the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ. The entire world did not accept Jesus Christ, and he crucified him. But again, the plan of salvation was not negated. But by his death on the cross, Christ crushed the devil. And by his resurrection, death and corruption was defeated. So the church, the body of Christ, is traveling through history facing much tribulation, turmoil, and martyrdom from the God-opposed, God-fighting powers who are continuously crucifying the flesh of Christ. But in the end, the church will be victorious, triumphant, because Christ defeated the devil, the world, and death. The church churches and sanctifies nature, and it leads it to the kingdom of God. So if the book of Genesis gives us an account of the creation of man and his fall, the book of the Revelation describes apocalyptically the journey of the church, the faithful through the history of creation, and more specifically, the rebirth, the recreation, and the eternal glory of men and the visible creation. The book of the Revelation, which you are introducing today, contains the entire mystery of divine dispensation, of divine economia. It contains it in summary form, from the incarnation of the Word of God up until the second coming of Christ, Judgment Day, and the appearance of the kingdom of God. To give you a bird's eye view, I tell you this, in only one scene of the book of the Revelation, the mystery of incarnation can be seen. In chapter 12, we read about the woman who holds the male child. Before she gave birth, the beast was waiting for the pregnant woman to give, the, to give birth so he could grab the newly born child and devour it. But when the child was born, the woman was led into the desert and the beast runs behind the woman spewing water from his mouth like a river, sweeping the woman away with a current to flood and drown the child. 
but he does not reach the child because the child ascended into heaven. My friends, this is the entire history of the incarnation. The devil, according to one of our church fathers, was searching the virgins even from the Old Testament to see which one would give birth to the Messiah. However, according to St. Ignatius of Antioch, the male child escaped the attention of the prince of this world. The devil was not informed about the son of God's birth from the virgin. The devil had no clue. The devil is not omnipresent, nor does he know everything. However, he kept a close watch and we see this very clearly in the book of the Revelation. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child. Now the fact that the woman becomes swept away in a torrent signifies the Theotokos or the church. The person of the woman here has two aspects, two applications. The Theotokos or the church certainly the church, because the church is the body of Christ, which body Christ received from the Theotokos, the Panagia. Consequently, the Theotokos and the church is the same thing with two views or aspects. So here we have the two coincide, and yet they differ as well. The church is persecuted, the disciples and the Theotokos are persecuted, but the child was snatched up to heaven. In other words, we have the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ. The devil can no longer do anything to the child. He cannot go to heaven. But since then, he pursues the woman in the deserts. He turns against the church day in and day out. And someone can see in this scene alone the cross-section of the mystery of God's holy dispensation. And there's a number, there are numerous scenes such as this in the entire book of the Revelation. So the book of the Revelation refers to the establishment and the expansion of the Church of Christ, the kingdom of God on earth, which is the church, the unfolding of the battle between the church or the woman, and the beast or the God-opposing powers. We will see what these God-opposing powers are. And in the end, the plagues take place against the beast, against the unbelieving world. The church is triumphant. Christ comes, judges the world. The devil is bound, and the kingdom of God glows. This is the general diagram of the book of the Revelation. The central theme of the book is the second coming of Christ as judge, judge, and king. The book starts with this theme, and it finishes with the same. The church, the bride, and the spirit who remains in the church will say, Come, Lord Jesus. And the response is, Yes, I'm coming soon. And this describes the state of expectation which characterizes the spirit of the book, the state of expectation in the church. And the church is expecting Christ. It awaits him as judge and as king to put away all evil, to expel the devil, so sin will cease to exist, so corruption and decay will cease to exist, so death will cease to exist. 
Consequently, the central idea of the book is Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ, Christ coming back was judge and king. The central theme which seems to be moving through the book as we see in many, many scenes repeatedly, it's based on a sevenfold system. This will be more obvious during the analysis of the book. And again, the central theme is the battle between the kingdom of God and the God-opposing power, with the end result, the triumph of the church of Christ. The purpose of the writing of the book of the Revelation is the preparation of the faithful to face the tribulation which awaits them, and also the consolation and the reinforcement of the faithful to fight the good fight up to the end. All these things that I'm bringing up with a few words are recorded in the book of the Revelation with visions, images, and descriptions which make up the symbolic language of the book of the Revelation. To be sure, the book of the Revelation is a primarily prophetic book. However, prophecy does not only reveal the future events, but the present as well. So we have here prophecy in its broad sense. Our Lord himself tells us in this book, in chapter 119, he instructs John, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. John happens to be in Patmos, he's exiled according to our tradition, and uh, he's in the cave of the Revelation, and uh, it is still there today on that island. So John used to pray there incessantly, incessantly, according to tradition, and uh, a certain Sunday, as he will tell us in the beginning of the book, he was in the Spirit, and he saw all these revelations and visions which he records following the command of Christ. So write all these things, the present, and those things that will happen in the future. From this we see that the book of the Revelation is prophetic. And we mentioned that prophecy in its broad sense is not limited to the future, but a prophecy can contain or include the future, the present, but also the past, and we will explain. When a prophecy pertains to the future, it comes to reveal what will take place in the future, which is unknown to every created being. The future is not known by any man or angel or the devil. In reality, the future is only known to God and no one else. So prophecy is a privilege of the true God only, and if you will, it is also a privilege of our true Orthodox faith. The prophecy can also pertain to the present for whatever thing or event escapes the attention of the people at that time. For example, when St. John the Baptist is called a prophet, what do you think? Did he prophesy the future? No. St. John prophesied the present. He did not prophesy the future, nor did he prophesy the past. St. John the baptizer prophesied the present only. And the nucleus of his prophecy was, here is the Messiah. Here is the Lamb of God. When the leaders of the people ask him, who are you? Are you the Messiah? 
No, I'm not the Messiah. I am the voice of the one calling or crying out in the wilderness. I am here to witness for the Messiah. The one who has been before me time-wise is now in front of me. The one who is more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John is prophesying about Christ, but Christ is present. John the baptizer is a great prophet. However, he is only prophesying, prophesying the present. We must add that it is more difficult to prophesy the present than to prophesy the future. Finally, a prophecy also pertains to the past. It prophesies those things that human eye has not seen. When Moses, for instance, when Moses records in the book of Genesis the creation of men and the world, how did he know these things? He's writing prophetically. So he's a prophet that refers to the past and something else which even adds a broader dimension to the meaning of prophecy, more so than what we said above. Prophecy also has the element of teaching. It comes to advise to move people towards straight paths and repentance. It can bring consolation and encouragement to those who are fighting the hard fight of the spiritual life and so on. Many times, the prophets come to strengthen, to help, and to move people towards repentance and to elevate the people who listen to them. So prophecy does not limit itself to what happened and what will happen, but it also comes to teach God's people how they must walk. For this reason, I underline this, and please make a mental note of this. We must not. We must not look at the book of the Revelation with the narrow meaning of prophecy. In other words, a book that will reveal the future to us. Not so, my friends. The book of the Revelation will take us back into the past and the present as well. Our Lord said, what is now? Those things that exist now, not necessarily the things that John was seeing in the vision, the symbolic images. No, when John will write about Babylon the great prostitute, Rome. Rome is not limited to that time frame 2,000 years ago. What is now is also valid for today, and we must not limit our interpretation to the historical facts only. So what is now is for today and for tomorrow. So what is now refers to the present. So we need to understand that the book of the Revelation transcends through the past, present, and future, and it has this wide range in its character. It comes to comfort, to uplift, to restore, to warn, to call out, to point out the Antichrist, to warn, and this is at all times and all seasons, but especially at a time where the spiritual awareness is very low. The book of the Revelation is a very vivid book with much inexpressible grace and freshness despite some of these horrific images. This book has a freshness about it and it has a certain tenderness. It is a true masterpiece of the Holy Spirit and it becomes truly delightful for the person who can catch on and see some of the wonders of this book. 
even though it is written in the common dialect of the Hellenistic times, and this is so interesting from the scope of its literature, that foreign scholars claim that this book of the Revelation employs its own grammar, and this makes it very graceful. It is not extremely rich in its vocabulary, just like out of the four Gospels, John's Gospel has the poorest vocabulary, but flies in the stratosphere of theology. It is the most theological of all the Gospels. John mimics the emptiness of God the Word, who takes on the poverty of the human existence. The very Word of God became poor, and through these lowly and poor words that John uses, the wealth of theology becomes manifest, the wealth of the kingdom of God. This wealth is so abundant that it runs over and beyond the meaning of these words. It is something so fantastic, so amazing, that only the person who familiarizes himself with this book of the Revelation can discover all these elements and wonders in a way that they never exhaust themselves. Again, it is a true masterpiece. It has unity. It has symmetry. It has great rhythm. It has powerful wording despite the poverty of the words. It has wealth, wealth of colors and tones. It has a great variety of topics. It has a certain flexibility, vivacity, and it is also very scenic that it magnetizes the person that reads and studies it. There's no other book in history, no other book in the history of humanity that has as many commentaries, as many writings, and as many references as this book. A great number of books have been written, are written and will be written about the book of the Revelation. It is a great treasure, really a book of great depth, one that awakens people's conscience. It amazes people with its wonderful imagery and scenery. The main scene is the heaven and the earth. Its place of reference is the entire universe. And its time frame is not limited to the earth's history, but it moves beyond to the universal history and eternity. This is why we would be making an interpretive mistake if we would wish to interpret the book of the Revelation based on a certain topography, a certain geography, such as the United States or Greece or Constantinople. And many of you who have studied apocalyptic literature will know exactly what I'm talking about, the tendency to want to interpret events of this book in the narrow space of New York or Iraq, or Constantinople, or in the limited space of the country of Greece. The book of the Revelation is not just for the Greeks or the Americans. It is a universal book, as we mentioned. Its stage is heaven and earth. Its time frame is the universal history and eternity. So as Greeks, let's not try to limit it to our national dreams and aspirations. This is very poor to try to do that. And this is why all those who try to interpret in this narrow-minded manner have missed their mark. 
my friends, all those who wrote books and commentaries based on these narrow margins, their claims were false, and they were obviously ashamed. You all remember all those interpreters who tried to stretch the prophecies of the Revelation to fit the Gulf War about eight, nine years ago, and Saddam Hussein. The war is over. Saddam Hussein is still in power, and all these prophets were somewhat mistaken. In our Greek history of interpreters, I will mention Apostolos Makakis, who wanted to interpret the book of the Revelation always in a limited geographical area of the country of Greece, with Constantinople as the center. It goes without saying that when we try to interpret by the current of each century, we will not be accurate. At the beginning of the century, Makrakis tried to interpret the book of the Revelation using Mohammedanism as the dark powers or the spirit of the Antichrist. There's no question that the expansion of Mohammedanism is included in the entire spectrum of this book. But we cannot say that the book of the Revelation will deal with this current alone and exclusively. This is a mistake. Not communism, not atheism, not materialism. None of these can take a central theme on the stage of this book. They are simply links on the chain. They are great factors, and they are included in this book because these systems take on universal dimensions. But the book of the Revelation does not exhaust itself to these systems alone. So let's never say that the beast is communism or Mohammedanism. Not so. To say that these are forerunners of the beast, there's no doubt about it, but they are not the actual apocalyptic beast. We are delighted that you have filled up the space of the entire church here tonight. This book wants to attract the interest of the audience and we hope that you bring twice as many people here with you next time so we can outgrow this space and do our next talk in a park somewhere. But let's be careful. Do not expect to hear in this place while interpreting this book unalterably. Let's not expect to learn if and when World War III will take place or when the Antichrist will come and when the second coming of Christ will take place. Please do not expect these things. To do this, it would be an interpretational plunder. It is very dangerous for any interpreter to make a statement and try to pinpoint any of the above apocalyptic events. What's characteristic is the fact that all those who have spoken in this manner prove to be irresponsible. They interpret it wrong. We need to follow the straight line of our church. And this path, my friends, was mapped out by three God-inspired people, three God-inspired Holy Fathers, Andrew of Caesarea of the 6th century, who wrote a commentary, and I have it in my hands, glory be to God, Arethas, Archbishop of Caesarea as well, of the ninth century. And I have his commentary in my hands as well. 
and Ecumenios, Archbishop of Triki of 6th century. I don't have this one. I only have the two of Andrew and Aretha of Caesarea, complete commentaries of the book of the Revelation where someone can see the orthodox line of our church, how our church interprets the book of the Revelation. It is not by mere coincidence, and we will analyze this more as we go on, again, it is not by accident that our church fathers did not over-occupy themselves with the book of the Revelation. Trembellas, for example, interpreted and published commentaries on all of the books of the Holy Scriptures, with the exception of the book of the Revelation. Trembellus was a great, great Greek scholar of the 20th century. But we will see this in our journey of subjects, but I will tell you only this. My basic resources, which include the great commentary of Professor Braciotis, the only one of its kind in the Neo-Hellenic theological literature, the only one, along with St. Andrew and Arethas, serve as my guides. All the others have some hidden dangers. I'm telling you all this because I would not want to go astray, nor would I want to mislead you. So I urge you not to let your imagination go wild, what's going to happen, and some of the new things that we will learn. No, vigilance is required. We will learn in our long journey through this holy book how we are to understand this scripture. I will certainly try to tell you something at this point, but this something will not exhaust itself, but we will continue to learn as we journey through the analysis of this book in spite of all these things that we just mentioned, we cannot say that we don't need to look out for the signs of the times. The signs of the end of times, he said, as soon as the twigs of the fig tree get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And he goes on to give a number of signs in the gospel. Then you will know that the end of the Son of Man is near. No, we need to watch for the signs because our Lord himself instructed us about this. He spoke to us about the signs of the end of times. He said, as soon as the, the uh, twigs of the fig tree get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. And he goes on to give a number of signs in the gospel. And uh, he tells us that then you will know that the end is near. Which end, Lord? Here, there's a double image, the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world. The book of the Revelation is a very difficult book. The prophecy is unfathomable. It runs deep. St. Ignatius instructs St. Polycarp in a letter. Well, St. Ignatius was on his way to Rome to martyr and become food for the lions. St. Ignatius writes to Polycarp, Study the times very carefully. Anticipate the one who's above time, or the timeless one. The invisible 
but for us visible. So study, pay great attention to the times, and along the way, keep expecting the one who's above time, Jesus Christ, the preternal Son and Word of God. Keep expecting him. This exhortation of St. Ignatius is very important. However, this should not throw us in the turmoil of curiosity and to the consequences of a sickly imagination. We must mention that not all people have a healthy imagination. People also have sick and wild imaginations and can make a mountain out of a molehill. Some of you can go out, use this imagination, misquote what we said here, and begin to say that Father Athanasius announced that World War III will be in a couple of years or will take place at such and such time. And so people will bring this to my attention. They will ask me, and I will have no clue. Why all this? Because these wild imaginations have exaggerated some things that they thought that they heard, and they expressed them according to their imagination. Senior Nell says something excellent. It is safer and less dangerous to await the fulfillment of a prophecy than to keep trying to guess and estimate and foretell what is about to take place. St. Andrew of Caesarea also tells us something very important. Time and experience will reveal to the vigilant. The time will reveal these events. Uh, now, you will ask, why should we bother, and where is the value if things will happen in the future? It is important to know in advance what this book says, so I will know how to stand. Specifically, let's talk about the presence of the Antichrist. When he comes, he will mesmerize the masses. He will be wise, thoughtful, a philanthropist, extremely civilized. He will be an amazing personality. He will enchant the entire world. This is what the fathers are saying. People will boast about his governing abilities, about his wisdom. He will be a universal king. All these unions that are taking place geographically one day will solidify to a great union and then the Antichrist will come forth. It may sound strange, but it's true. This is the warning that we have from the Word of God. In those days, Prophet Elijah and Enoch will appear. These two prophets did not taste death. They will serve as prophets of the present, not the future. They will call out that this is the Antichrist. And people will be amazed. What? He's the greatest governor this world has ever known. No, he's the Antichrist. They prophesy the present. Those that are vigilant, the people with a pure heart, those who live a spiritual life, these people will recognize him instantly. The rest of the masses will grab the prophets and they will hang them in the center of Jerusalem from a tallest tree. Now, when will all these things come to pass? When they come to pass. And when we will know? When they are happening. 
each event we will recognize during its outcome. So as you see, it is very important how we approach and how we study the book of the Revelation. And when we open the book of the Revelation, we feel that we are in front of a disorder or in front of an abyss with no beginning and no end, an abyss of visions, depictions, and images. However, in reality, there is no abyss, nothing like that. There's rhythm and order based on a sevenfold system. And this throughout the entire content of this book, which is truly amazing. It's like looking up in the sky and trying to map out in an orderly fashion six to seven thousand stars, the ones that are visible. Is this possible for us? No, it's out of the question. But not so to the astronomer. It may be chaotic for us, but not for the astronomer. He has mapped these stars out at his studies, and he knows how to look for them. So the book of the Revelation is not chaotic, but we can easily find the beginning, the middle, and the end. However, this is the main point that we do not know how to interpret it. This is the problem. How do we interpret the book of the Revelation? Without wanting to go off on a tangent, I must tell you that there have been presented four different theories or methods of interpretation. But I will bring up only a couple. This presents a dilemma as to which theory to use, and you will see this as we proceed with our interpretation. The first theory, which has been accepted by many church fathers, is called cyclical, kikliki. In other words, when we read the Holy Scripture, we ask, these things that are recorded by the prophet, are these things meant for his time, for the journey of the church through history, or for the end of time? So in this instance, we have the progressive or eschatological method. The cyclical states this. It takes a series of visions, a circle or a combination of seven events, and says, these seven apply to the events of this time frame. The second combination of seven applies to the events of a subsequent time frame until we reach the end of time. The second theory is the chronological theory which is not repetitive or cyclical, and it does not refer to the sevenfold combination. But it is a journey where we can say we are now at the first chapter, or if you will, at the third chapter, where reference is made to the seven churches of Asia Minor. So the first three chapters refer to the time of John. The chapters beyond that until the last chapter refers to the time after John until the end of history. So we could say that every chapter corresponds to a piece of history. The first is not accurate, neither is the second. They are both not accurate as methods of interpretation. 
Andrew Creed prefers the cyclical, but he uses all the methods of interpretation. In other words, we must use a selective method. In some areas, we will use the cyclical, in some areas, the chronological, and in some, the eschatological. And I hope I did not succeed to confuse all of you, but you must understand that it is difficult to grasp all this. And uh, I hope that I didn't mix things up for you. So again, some fathers use a combination of this method, and this combination is called the spiral method. To understand this, let's say that I'm ready to climb a round mountain with an uphill winding road. After climbing a huge circle, I find myself a little higher. One more circle, and I'm even higher, and as I get up higher, the mountain, the circles become smaller. So here I have the combination of the circular. I start at the base, and I end up at the top. So a prophecy can begin at the beginning when the Apocalypse was written, when the book of the Revelation was first written, and this prophecy can actually continue until the end of times, until the second coming of Christ. So as we see here, I have the cyclical interpretation, but I also have the straight line which progresses to the top. And this combination we call spiral interpretation. Now let's see how the church fathers use all these to interpret. Let's look at uh, two to three examples. St. John says in his first epistle, 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. It is the last hour. But the last hour means what? means that the second coming of Christ is at hand. That's what last hour means. There's nothing beyond that. So it's the last hour because you heard that the Antichrist is coming. So the Antichrist is a sign of the last hour. But many Antichrists have come. And this is how we know that this is the last hour because many Antichrists have come into the world. Now we seem to be all mixed up and all confused. How, how can we understand all this? It's really simple. We have the Antichrist, the main person with capital A. All the others are small Antichrist. They're all his forerunners. But when is the last hour? The last hour begins from the moment when St. John wrote the book of the Revelation. Let's see how St. Paul records this in 2 Timothy 3.1. There will be terrible times in the last days. Holy Apostle Paul, what last days are you referring to? St. John the Chrysostom interprets. The last days begin at the very moment at which St. Paul writes his epistle. One more example so you can understand it even better. 
When Christ said that Jerusalem will be destroyed, stone will not be left upon stone, and then the powers of the heavens will be shaken, the sun and the moon will lose their brightness. What do we have here? One image that has two levels. The first level will take place a few years after this prophecy. The first phase of this prophecy took place at 70 A.D., which was the total destruction of Jerusalem. The second plane of this same image is the second coming of Christ and the end of times. That's the grand finale of this prophecy. The first phase was, let's say, the semifinal, and this is the final. So every moment in history, we have the last hour every moment. So what we see here are circles that get wider and wider, and at the center of these widening circles, we have the procession of the prophecy. At the first circumference of the circle, we have the interpretation of the prophecy. At a second wider circumference, we have the interpretation again, and a third circumference, and at the end, the great circumference of one huge circle will be touching upon the very, very end of times, the second coming of Christ. Therefore, this is how we will study the book of the Revelation, which means that this book is not something that was or something that will be, but it always is. The book of the Revelation does not exhaust itself at a given time. It is a universal book that even enters the kingdom of God itself. St. Andrew of Caesarea says something very nice on this. The prophets of the Old Testament were interpreted by many interpreters, but many prophecies remain unfulfilled without reaching the end or the depth of the prophecy. Now you may say, but the prophets of the Old Testament referred to Christ. Yes, but also beyond Christ and to his second coming and to the kingdom of God. My friends, let's never say that the prophecies of the Old Testament were all fulfilled. Just because Christ came, that does not exhaust the prophecies of the Old Testament. On this St. Andrew of Caesarea once again says, they will not be exhausted, not even in the kingdom of God itself, because it is in the kingdom of God especially where we will be able to understand the full depth of these prophecies. So by now, you may begin to understand that the book of the Revelation is a tremendously deep and unfathomable book and we need to approach it with a great deal of respect. Now at the closing of this brief introduction, I will ask you not to get discouraged if we were somewhat difficult. An introduction is always difficult, and even though the introduction was meant to shine some light on the subject, I hope that I did not manage to get you all confused, but I urge you to have a little patience Keep listening and you will see how beautifully this book will refresh us, how we will gain great understanding through this analysis. This book has so many great things to offer. So again, 
Coming to the end of this introduction, we must keep in mind a few basic precepts on how to stand while hearing this book of God. First of all, let's never forget that we have in our midst the living Word of God, the Word of God Himself, since this book is God-inspired, like all the other books of the Holy Scriptures. Second, this Word of God is deep and difficult to interpret and to gain understanding. One needs to have humility, prayer, attention, tears, and persistence. Let's use the example of St. John the Evangelist in the book of the Revelation, chapter 5, 1, 4, which says, I heard a voice, no one can open this scroll. And I started to cry, says John, because no one could learn about the contents of this book. And the angel who was guiding him comes and tells him, Don't weep. The book was opened by the morning star, the Son of God. The incarnate Word of God, Jesus Christ. So don't weep. But why did he open the book? Because St. John was weeping. A third point, and something we need to be careful of, every conclusion which we will draw from this book, whether ethical, moral, or spiritual, we will not only use to instruct others, but let's apply these points to ourselves first. When Christ will say, you are not cold or hot, you are lukewarm. This is why I will spit you out of my mouth. Let's not say that he will spit out or throw up the others. No, we need to critique and criticize ourselves ourselves first and question, am I also lukewarm? Maybe I am. And then I will discover, if I have any sincerity, that yes, I am lukewarm and Christ is talking directly to me. My friends, this is how we will be able to gain some understanding from the book of the Revelation so its truth can be revealed to us at least as much as humanly possible so we can walk this golden and bright journey of our church in the face of bloodshedding and life-killing swords of the godless powers all through history.